If you want something in this life, you have to reach out and take it. That's a lesson that most of us were taught. Nobody's going to hold your hand and give you what you want in this world. Real men and women see their aspirations and desires and they act in order to get them. That's the American story that we tell ourselves. If you want to become successful in this life or, or healthy or whole, you're the one that has to go out and work for it. Children rely on their parents for food and for emotional regulation and for support, but adults don't. The whole point of becoming an adult is growing in independence. At least that's what we tell ourselves, right? So many of us have internalized this posture of self-actualization, self-realization, self-motivation. But then something interesting happens. When we come to the life of faith, all of these tactics of motivation fall flat. All of the tactics of working harder, doing more, forcing your way in backfire. When we use the motivational standards of the world for adulthood, for maturing in Christ, the wheels come off the bus. It's interesting, isn't it? When we try to grow and force our way into spiritual maturity, we almost always end up in burnout, legalism, fatigue, and a feeling of rejection from God. Because here's the incredibly difficult thing that we all know, but we also don't know. Christian maturity is completely upside down. Christian maturity is a life of ever-increasing dependence upon God. You know, if you're an adult and you call your mom every day, now this is assuming your mom isn't, you know, isolated, alone, and aging, right? Okay, that might be a good thing. But if you're like my age and you call your mom every day and like, I don't know what to do with my life, I need help, what should I do? That's probably not a healthy pattern of maturity, right? Forgive me if that casts an unfair light. But you can all recognize too much dependence in adulthood is considered normally a lack of maturity. However, in our life with, a tri with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a life of maturity is crying out to the Father for help every day. Relying on the Son for comfort and wisdom every moment of every day. Relying on the Spirit for your strength that you can't generate in yourself every moment of every day. Christian maturity is not a decreasing dependence. Christian maturity is an ever-increasing dependence upon who God is and who He is in relationship with us. And so often as Christians... We take the standards of maturity in the world and apply them to the faith, and it backfires horribly. Today, as we uh, culminate and, and complete our sermon series on uh, the practices of the beloved, the practices of discipleship, I want to look at this last piece, that there is no point in the Christian faith in which you have arrived. There is no point in the Christian faith in which you can say, okay, God, you've raised me up, You've sent me off to college, well done. 
Rather, the life of the Christian is lived in perpetual and eternal dependence. And then I also want to look at you know, two practices of dependence today. So if you would, turn with me to John 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look through verse 6. And I first want to look at a lifestyle of dependence. What does that look like? And what is our theology of utter reliance and dependence? And then I want to look at the practice of God's word engaging us and also Christian love. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, he, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I love that. A fruitful branch is going to be pruned. It's going to be painful, but it will bear more fruit in the long term. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I love Jesus's illustration here of the branch and the vine because it shows that reality of perpetual and necessary dependence. What is a vine? The vine is prior to the branch and independent of the branch. It is rooted in the ground and gathers nutrients from the ground and brings them to the branches that, you know, sprout leaves and bear much fruit. But here's the reality. If you cut off a branch, the vine's still there. But if you cut off a branch from the vine, the branch it loses what it is. It loses its unique identity. There's a difference. We don't call a, a branch that has fallen to the ground a branch. What do we call that? A stick or a twig. It gets a different name. It's the same thing as why we call a dead body a corpse. It becomes something different. It loses its life. It loses its vitality. It loses its telos. Yes, a branch can have, you know, a moment of life apart from the vine. It takes a couple days for it to dry out. There's water and moisture inside of it, but it can't bear fruit and it can't live for very long. And so what Jesus is teaching us here is that in order for us to actually be what we are called to be, for us to actually be growing, thriving disciples of Jesus, it must be done in the state of radical dependence upon the vine. He goes so far as to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, apart from me, you, can, you, know, you can't do the really hard things. He doesn't say, apart from me, you, know, you can do most of the Christian life except for that whole like, really tough thing of you know, forgiving or loving your enemy. He doesn't say that. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The vine and the branch, or the branch lives in perpetual, never-ending need of the vine. The branch lives in a posture of perpetual reception and reliance. You know, in our lives, postures um, are significant. We all have them, right? 
You know, you work at a desk all day. You get a posture of being slumped over, right? That's an easy one. You know, I'm, I have the posture of kind of gangly, right? Gangly people have postures. Yeah, that's me. Um, but we also have mental postures, mental ways that we engage the world. Because what is a posture? It's a thing that you do without thinking about doing it, Right? And we have mental ways in which we engage the world around us. You know, we can have a posture of indignation because maybe we were raised by hypercritical parents and maybe we consume a radical amount of hypercritical media. This is one of the incredibly difficult things of our current political structure is if you consume a massive amount of political media, what does it do inside of you? All it does is understand how to critique the other without ever engaging in self-critique, right? So that creates in us a posture of indignation of the other. Or, you know, a posture of suspicion. We're all growing in our postures of suspicion. You know, if you're older here, at one point you picked up your phone call and you could at least assume that maybe the person on the other side of it wasn't trying to rob you constantly, and now the majority of the phone calls we get are someone trying to rob us, right? Scam phone calls. You can't actually block those, by the way. It's, it's, it's a thing. You have to risk blocking people that are trying to call you who aren't saved in your phone. But what does that do inside of us? It creates in us a posture of suspicion. People are constantly trying to rob me or my aging parents. And so we're suspicious. We're struggling with that, et cetera. You understand what I'm trying to say? I think. I hope. Well, it's interesting. God created us to have a posture towards him. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and he gave them everything. He gave them food to eat. They didn't have clothes. He gave them a life of relationship with him. And he said, you know, basically they were placed as priests in the garden and what we can think about it like this is their life posture was hands extended to God looking to receive. You know, children come to their parents, their mom and dad, and they say, what? Their hands are open looking to receive from them. But also that posture of hands open is also a posture of worship. Not only are you receiving, but you're also giving. But then what did Adam and Eve do? The one thing that they were not given, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, instead of a hand of outward reception because they were not given that gift, they turned their hands downward to grasp at it. And we do this now, don't we? Our lives are not spent with our hands turned upward looking to receive and looking to give back to God, but our hand Posture has turned downward as we've become the chess master of our life, looking to control our life circumstances, looking to control those around us. And then when the other chess master comes into our life, the other who's looking to control their life, their maneuvering and my maneuvering come into conflict with each other. And that's the state of existence we have found ourselves in. The life we were created for was to, hand, to have our hands outstretched to receive from God perpetually and eternally. Everything that we needed was meant to be given as a gift with our hands turned upward. But in our sin, what has our life posture become? The hand turned downward to control. 
But what do we see in our Lord Jesus Christ? The second Adam, the better Adam, our great covenantal head. Look with me in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the Christ hymn. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Christ do? So often we think, okay, Christ paid for my sins upon the cross. He did. But he lived a complete life for a reason. Because all of his life is substitutionary for you. Every moment of his life was given for you. It's called the vicarious life of Christ. You are vicariously there with him, clothed in him. That story is your story. When you share your testimony with your small group, what you probably should do is just read Matthew. That's your testimony. If you are united to Jesus Christ. And so what did Jesus do in his entire life? He took the dead, grasping hand of Adam and he turned it upward to the Father, saying, not my will be done, but yours. And not only that, but he gave his entire life to the Father in heaven, living in utter reliance upon him, obedience to him, and perfect worship of him his entire existence. That's your story now. That's my story now. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live our lives in utter reliance, obedience, and worship to God in all things. It's not a mark of immaturity to be reliant upon him. It's not a mark of immaturity to come to him as a child, always with your hands outstretched, but that's the very definition of Christian maturity because that's the very life of Jesus Christ. You know, every week we reveal this in the Eucharist, don't we? Every week we come forward, and what do we do? We come forward empty, with nothing in our hands, and we hold them out. Many of you are kind of newer to Anglicanism. Don't, don't grab, please don't grab. I, I don't slap your hands, but I probably should. But I don't, don't grab the wine, don't grab the cups of wine. Wait and receive, because that's the posture of grace. A child looking for a gift, a child coming with their hands, hands empty, looking to be filled. And here's the reality. If you want to fight sin in your life, if you want to grow stronger for the Lord, if you want to serve him, if you want to be missionally engaged with him, all of it comes back to this. Christian activity always starts with the inactivity of looking to God and saying, fill me. But we so often get it turned around, don't we? We're too busy to be filled serving God, and then we burn out. We, you know, get caught in our spirals of sin, and all the Christian maturity that we're longing for 
it falls between our fingers as we try to grasp at it. Christian maturity doesn't start with grasping. It starts with the posture of Jesus Christ, which is utter reception, reliance, and a giving to the Father. Now, Jesus gives us two ways that we can grow in this. First, by his word. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me be my disciples. Christian fruit always springs from abiding in the very word of God. Because we, we don't believe this is just some ordinary book. Rather, we believe that it's Christ himself speaking to us by his instrument called the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason why the word of God is alive and active is not because there's paper. It's not because there's ink. But because when we come to this book in faith and hold it with hands outstretched, and receive it with ears looking to receive. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings us into the very presence of Jesus, and He speaks His word of life to us. So many of you are, are like really intrigued all the time by what's going on in the Eucharist. You know, that's like every time, you know, I sit down with new people in the church, What's the Eucharist about? That's great. That's fine, because I know many of you weren't raised in Eucharistic traditions. And here's what I always tell you, right? We believe in kind of a pneumatological view of Scripture, meaning, or of, of, of the, the Eucharist. You know, when we say, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord. We believe that in, in the sacrament, Christ, by the Spirit, is bringing us into his very presence and speaking his gospel word to us. That Christ, when you receive the Eucharist, it is not me who is present, it is not Kyle who is present, it is not Carrie who is present. It is Christ Jesus speaking his gospel truth to you. I love you this much. My body was broken for you. My blood was poured out for you. You are forgiven. You are fed. You are mine. But way less of you are intrigued by what's going on in the Bible. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's the Spirit bringing us to the presence of Jesus as he proclaims his word that gives life. He proclaims his word that cleanses us. Matthew or John 15, 3 says, already you are clean because of the word that I spoke to you. If we want to grow in Christ Jesus, if we want new life, if we want our souls to be fed, we must feed upon the very word of God that gives life. This isn't an ordinary book. Often, even in our Bible study methodology, we are taught to grasp at it, to stand over it like a scientist, but it stands over us. It interprets us. It speaks life to us. It is a meal that satisfies us. <laughs> you don't stand over scripture. Scripture stands over you. Scripture is not something to be grasped. It's a word to be received. And it's a word that gives life. Are you receiving the word of God? Martin Luther said that the ears are the organs of faith. Why did he say that? Because all an ear can do is receive. 
It's a receptive organ. And so too, our eyes and our hands and our entire posture when we, pre- when we come to the word of God, we ought to come to it with our hands outstretched saying, Lord, read me. Lord, speak to me. Lord, feed me with your life-giving word. You don't stand over it. It stands over you. Now, second, what I want to look at is a life of reception, is a life of Christian love. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide, right? Live in a constant state of attachment and dependence. Abide in my love. We like that part. Now look at what it says next. How does that look? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Faithfulness reveals love. Faithfulness reveals love. Faithfulness, that binding our hands to the other. In marriage, we say, my hands will always be open to you to give and to receive. Faithfulness of a mother who gets up for the 100th time at night. Hi, I got a smile. My hands are always open to you to give, but my hands are always open to you to receive. Faithfulness to an aging parent that you're caring for into the hard seasons of life where you say, my hands are bound to you in love and I will always be here to give and I will always be here to receive. Faithfulness is one of the great marks of love that we don't talk about much in our culture. We are looking for moments of love, flashes of love, but we all know deep down that true love that we want to receive is the faithful love that says, I will always have my hands open to you to receive and to give. And how do you show faithful love to a king? How do you show faithful love to a king? Don't forget who Jesus is. He's the king. And you can't show faithful love to a king when you constantly undermine his laws. All that shows is rebellion. All that shows is disloyalty. True love revealed to a king is receiving his commandments, even in the places where we absolutely struggle to receive them, and saying, not my will, but yours be done. That's what marks love for a king a faithfulness to his commandments, a faithfulness to his words. But I want to say one last thing to that. This is what the first use of the law does. The first use of the law says, obey God's commandments. Then you get to God's commandments and you say, woe is me, I am undone. And what does it do? It drives our hands more to him saying, send me your spirit because I can't keep your law, Jesus. Send me your spirit to give me a new heart, to love what you love, to desire what you desire, to do what you do, because on my own, my hand is always grasping at my will. The law of God, which reveals a love that we have for God, isn't something you can do in your own strength. Rather, it is yet again an even deepening of reliance. 
and further deepening of saying, Lord, give me what I cannot do on my own. Give me a heart to love what you love. Give me a heart of obedience. From beginning to end, the Christian life is never lived outside of reliance. It is an ever-increasing reliance upon the will and the work of God within us. My prayer for you is, as we've been talking about the practices of the beloved, that, that if any of it has spoken to you, if any of it is, has moved within you a longing to grow more like Jesus and to grow in a life with him, that it would ultimately increase in you a driving to your knees, an opening up of your hands saying, Jesus, send me your spirit to do a work inside of me that I can't do in myself. That is not a mark of immaturity. That is not a mark that somehow or another you're less discipled. That is the mark of true discipleship. Not a diminishment of reliance, but an ever increasing reliance upon the spirit to work in you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you work in us? First, Holy Spirit, would you loosen our grasping hands over the things in this world that we want to control? And would you turn our hands upward by the power of Jesus to receive, to obey, to follow you, to rely upon you in everything? Lord, we need you to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, to give us a longing for reliance to give us a heart, to turn, to, to give up our control and to turn to you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us into a new life. Lord, give us that great gift of ever-increasing communion and love for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.